to open the scriptures is to open the gates of heaven. Father, we pray that you would open these writings that you've given to us uh, through the pen of so many men throughout history. And we pray, Lord, that you would help them to live for us now and that we would go away transformed by them. Amen. Amen. Well, in September, we we like to take a couple of weeks to think about what we feel God is calling us to in the year ahead. Uh, The first of these services is usually described as a vision service. As I said, I've always felt slightly uncomfortable with that. I use that language because it is the language that lots of people use, and it does describe uh, quite well what I'm doing. And uh, there is a, a, a Bible passage which says that people perish for want of vision. So there is something to it, but I I feel slightly uncomfortable about the language of vision, because it usually then means this is the pastor's latest project. So this is my idea for this year, this year we're going to be focusing on food or something. And uh, there is a problem with that, which which we're going to explore in a moment, but I do want to set out something about what I feel God is calling us, the type of church God is calling us to be in the next year. And uh, I'm going to focus more on values than on any particular activity. So if you've come expecting a menu of everything we're going to be doing as a church this year, then I'm sorry you're going to be disappointed. Uh, But that's not the type of setting I want to give. I want us to share in what the big idea is behind everything we do. And then when we get that, we will know what else we should do. The truth is, I don't know everything we're going to do this year as a church, because you haven't told me yet. Because you haven't listened to God yet. And I haven't yet. We believe that as we go through the year, if we are living the way God wants us to, if we are seeking to be the people he wants us to be, that each one of us will be available for God to say, actually, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and to counsel the people on your street, because they're really struggling at work. And you can get a couple of people from the church to help you with that. Or, here is somebody who's hungry, why don't you collect food for them? And the church can help you with that. But behind it all is a big idea. And I'm I'm going to explain this in uh, by using, first of all, uh, giving you a biblical and theological framework for it. So I'm going to show you it from scripture and explain what it means. And then I'm going to think of some of the ideas that I have for how it might be lived out in our church. I always want to do a lunchtime summary. I was touched yesterday and a little bit irritated, if I'm honest, that Heather came back from the academy that she and John have just started, having uh, training in theology and the Bible and in how to help to pastor churches. And uh, she said to me, oh, the guy who was running the academy said something, which sounds a lot like your lunchtime summaries. Did you take it from him? I was like, no. He is a good friend of mine, and he's also called Phil, but I do have my own ideas. Ouch, love, you know. Hashtag betrayal. Anyway, here's the big point, which Phil would agree with. We are here to glorify God, enjoy his presence, and do his work. Everything comes from that. If you want to summarise everything, that if, if... We live out the vision that I feel God is calling us to. What characterise us this year is this, that we are here to glorify God. To enjoy his presence and do his work. 
to glorify God, to enjoy his presence and to do his work. And everything else flows from that. See, the glory of God is the purpose of everything. It's the reason the whole of creation was made. We reflect his glory and in turn declare and proclaim it. Now that might sound slightly odd to you. Uh, if you are uh, somebody who's grown up in imbibing a culture that says actually everything we do is in some sense focused upon ourselves. Or perhaps in a slightly more pious way is focused upon other people. You often hear it said that the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Uh, it was, uh, I think, Archbishop William Temple who said that. Uh, and it's been quoted often ever since. And I want to say I get where the Archbishop was coming from. May he rest in peace. But actually he was wrong. And he was well-intentioned but wrong. The church doesn't exist for the benefit of its non-members. The church exists for the glory of God. Everything exists for the glory of God. The, the skies, the psalmist says, declare your glory. The clouds exist for the glory of God. For praise and for worship. It's the destiny and end goal of everything and the reason we were saved. Now this may sound odd. If we believe the purpose of the church is to evangelise the world, you can, uh, that can be some, an idea we have in our heads. If you grew up in a very conservative and uh, evangelistic culture, you can think, well, the purpose of the church is to evangelise the peoples. And I want to say evangelism is great. Tell people about Jesus. Tell them about somebody who loved them so much he left heaven and died for them. Wonderful. You might feel that... That the purpose of the church is to feed the hungry or counsel the uh, suffering. I want to say, wonderful, go for that. I spent 30 minutes yesterday counselling somebody who isn't a member of our church but just needed someone to talk to. It's a wonderful thing to do. If you grew up in, in liberal church circles, one of the uh, values you might have had is that uh, the purpose of the church was to do good in the world. There's nothing wrong with either of these things. They, they are both wonderful ideas. It is wonderful to tell people about Jesus. It's essential. It is wonderful to feed the hungry and to clothe the naked and to counsel the despairing. It, it's essential. Yet if we put those ideas or anything else first, if we set out and think we want to be a people who does this, then that thing becomes the object of worship. The object of our lives, the centre of our lives. That's actually the root of all idol worship. is to take something good and to make it the centre of our lives. If you think for a moment, that, that's true, isn't it? If you become self-centred, it's because you've taken a really good value, caring for yourself, taking care of the person God has made you to be, and made it the centre of your life. You'll become self-centred. When you see somebody who um, is spoiling their children, giving them everything they want, it's because they've taken something good, the care of their children, and made it the centre of their life. And so the child becomes an idol. You think about that, this is even true of uh, 
the more traditional ideas of idol worship. You think of the stories in the Old Testament of when Aaron made the golden calf. I often sympathize with Moses when I go away for a week and come back and find that the audio system is not working. And he's like, I went away for one week. Moses went up the mountain. He was like, I'm away for a month. I've just led the people out of Egypt. I've done battle with Pharaoh. And we've won. We've had the greatest escape, the greatest release of slaves in the history of humanity. And I go away for one month. I have one month off. And I come back and you guys are worshipping a golden calf. I mean, really. I sympathise with Moses there. And he gets cross. And you think, well, what was the problem there? The problem is not that gold is wrong. Gold is great. God has given it to us. Isn't it beautiful? I can see people with gold and jewellery on now. Gold is wonderful. It's not that cows are a problem. Cows are amazing. They give milk and they taste awesome. And they're just cool to look at. You think God must have an amazing sense of humour when he decided to make cows. And he was like, what should I go? Where should the milk come from? I know, udders. We'll make udders. You think, well, I'm thinking, yeah, that's good. Cows and gold aren't the problem. The problem is you've taken something really good and you said, well, no, I'm going to worship it. The 20th century songwriter Bob Dylan uh, wrote a song at a point, I don't know where Bob stands in his faith now, but there was a point where he was a committed evangelical Christian and he uh, wrote a song called You've Got to Serve Somebody. You, uh, you can serve the devil, you can serve the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And Bob uh, was unusually insightful in that. What he was saying is there is something which we all put at the centre of our lives, and if it's anything other than God, it tends to lead us astray. So if you put your child at the centre of your life, you will tend to spoil the child. If you put your wife at the centre of your life, you will tend to suffocate her and become actually unhappy and make her unhappy because she can't be God. Or your husband can't be God. Or the environment can't be God. These things let you down in the end. And you let yourself down. We can't help it. We take something good that God has given us and we make it the focus of our lives. And when we do that, we diminish the thing we seek to achieve so we don't actually get what we want. We rob ourselves of joy and satisfaction and we wind up in death. The reason we are created is to worship, to glorify God. The reason you were saved Jesus loves you, he wants you, he came for you, and the reason you were saved has nothing to do with you. It is to do with the glory of God. Thank God. I don't think I could cope with the pressure of the whole of human history and redemption being about my salvation. I mean, goodness me, what would you do next? Think, no, you were redeemed to join in the original purpose of creation, which was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And here's the paradox. When you glorify God, you find yourself satisfied. When we delight in God, we find ourselves delighted. When we take joy in Him, our joy never fails. We're going to look at some scriptures that that demonstrate that. You want to uh, imagine that the whole of uh, human history and of uh, created history 
billions of years of this planet are directed towards one end and it is the glory of God. For the earth, Habakkuk writes. If you can't find all these in time, don't worry, I'm, I'm pulling your leg. The earth, he writes, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The whole of human history is longing to be completed in God. Habakkuk 2.14 Then from the New Testament, St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 10 verse 31. We looked at this the other day with the kids. Whatever you do, whatever you eat or you drink, do it for the glory of God. And then very end of the Bible, Revelation 4 verse 11. This is a picture of a scene in heaven. And in the, in the scene in heaven, there are people worshipping who have died and have gone to worship God. And there are creatures there that you can't imagine. And each one of them says, day and night, you are worthy Our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Creation exists for the glory of God. You exist for the glory of God. And it will complete you, and you will find joy when you do it. See, this is the second question. How then do we, do, how then do we glorify God? After all, He is God. He doesn't need anything. That is what it means to be God. If you are interested in technical theology, it's called the aseity of God. There you go. It means that God does not need, he doesn't depend upon anybody else. That's what makes him different, one of the things that makes him different from anything else. Uh, you and I depend upon other things. Okay, I depend upon you relationally. I depend upon the air to breathe. I depend upon food to live. I depend upon clothing to keep warm. I need warm. I need other things. Everything in creation needs something else. Everything in creation needs something else. God does not need anything. He is entirely self-sufficient. And yet, we bring him glory. So how do we do that? How do we glorify God? How do we make him look big? How can you make someone who's already bigger than the whole universe look big? Sometimes things just look big. We glorify God, and here's the kick, by delighting in Him. You see, uh, it's possible to hear that the purpose of all creation, of you and me, and of redemptive history, and of uh, the world, and of the skies, and of the seas, and of the children, and of the future, and of the past, and the presence, is for the glory of God. And thank goodness me, what a narcissist. Those of you who don't know the story of Narcissus in Greek mythology, he was a Greek who was cursed because he was so beautiful and the gods were jealous. And so in Greek mythology they said, uh, you will be cursed by seeing yourself in a reflection in a pool of water and you will fall in love with yourself. And he could never tear his way, his gaze from his own reflection. So Narcissus stared at himself in the pool of water. He couldn't stop looking at himself. And so we have the word narcissistic, right? Somebody who all they care about is themselves. You think, well, isn't God narcissistic? Well, no. Because it is in glorifying God that we find joy. 
For God to truly love us, he seeks his own glory and asks us to do the same. To rejoice in him. He said, how do you want to grow? How are you going to glorify me? How are you going to achieve your life's aim? Well, the answer is I want you to be happy. Be happy. I think as a parent you can understand this. You, uh, if you have a child and they say, actually, what do you want from me more than anything else? And my children said, what do you want from me more than anything else? I would honestly turn around and say, love, more than anything else, I want you to be happy. I want you to find your joy. And God says, if you focus on all these other things, they let you down. If you focus on me, I will never let you down and you will have joy forever. Glorify me and find joy in me. Psalm 37 verse 4. This is a place of poetry. I promised you poetry. Psalm 37 and verse 4. Or even verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Philippians 4. I'm flicking forward. Again, I've intentionally made this difficult, not only for you, but for me. You can see me flicking around. Don't use bookmarks, they're cheating. And I forgot. Philippians 4. So you can see this is the big idea that runs all the way through the Bible. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. This is St. Paul, whose average day consisted of teaching people about Jesus, being whipped for teaching people about Jesus, being released from prison, going on teaching people about Jesus, being stoned from teaching, for teaching people about Jesus, fleeing to another city, and repeat. That was his whole life. And he says, I want you to be joyful all the time. How? By every reasonable measure, he should have been miserable as sin. What does he say? Rejoice in the Lord. Always. We begin to glorify God by delighting in Him. By finding our joy in Him. That joy is then expressed in praise and worship. It's why the longest book in the Bible is a book of songs. You've ever thought about that? You might think if you grew up with a very rule-based Christianity, very rigorous and harsh, that the biggest book in the Bible should be a book of rules. And actually it's a book of songs. A book of poetry. We're built to worship, to praise and to declare who God is and what he's done. We glorify God by finding our satisfaction in him, understanding him and thanking him. Supremely, we rejoice in Jesus, in his coming for us, his work on the earth, his death and his overcoming death. 
A church which glorifies God is a church full of praise and worship. It is a church full of song and music. It's a church of hope. It's not a place where we come and we fulfill our fantasies or we think wishfully of what we hope the world would be. We don't deny the hard and soul-wrenching pain that we often suffer. There's not a trace of that in the scriptures. The scripture is brutally honest about humanity. To the point where people find it very uncomfortable. She does not live in denial, but the church which glorifies God looks beyond the pain and finds hope and even joy in the midst of it. Because the root cause of her joy is not her circumstances, but the God underneath them. I want us to be a church that is a happy place to be. Not because each one of us does not live in pain. There are people in this church who live in pain enormously. Physical pain, emotional pain. There are those who struggle with depression. If you've been coming to the church, you will know that I sometimes struggle with depression. It's part of how I'm made. It does not mean to deny that, but it means to say there is something in the world and beyond the world that I can find joy in that does not change. Remember what they sang at the uh, anointing of the altar? Your steadfast love endures forever. The church which glorifies God remembers that. I'm actually going to look at that reading now, Second Chronicles 5 and verse 11 to 14. I'm not going to read it all because I read it earlier. Here's the point though. As we praise and worship God, if we're a church that, wor- that worships, that has worship at the centre of our lives, has praise at the centre of our lives, and joy in God at the centre of our lives, we will see more of God. Do you want to know how to see more of God, to know God more deeply in your life? Learn to rejoice in Him and praise Him. As we come to God, especially in prayer and singing, God meets with us, His Spirit comes to us and fills us. It's not that somehow God needs something and we give it to Him. Nor is it somehow that He is not here all the time. Rather, it is that as we look to him, as we set our hearts to glorify him in worship, our eyes are open to the reality that he is there all the time. Again, those of you who have read uh, the book of First and Second Kings will know the story of Elijah. Interesting thing happens at Elijah's, end of Elijah's life. If you don't know the story, let me tell it to you. you he uh, is an amazing prophet and he is really the sort of head of the prophets, if you like. And he goes through his whole life and he leaves at the end. And his apprentice, Elisha, who will go on in some ways to exceed everything Elijah did, is with him at the end. And Elisha is worried about Elijah leaving. And one of the things that happens, there's several things that happen as part of this story. One of the things that happens is that Elisha sees, as Elijah goes to be with the Lord, chariots of fire. 
Elijah goes and he, uh, he goes to be with God. And Elisha sees these chariots of fire and sends a pledge of God's presence. You don't read about them until later in the uh, chapter, uh, in, later in the book, when there is a king who comes to Elisha and says, we're surrounded by an army, how will we ever escape? And Elisha says to the Lord, Lord, I want you to open the king's eyes. I want you to let him see what is really here. And all of a sudden, Elisha's servant and those who are with him can see on the hills all around them those same chariots of fire, that same army of God. When we praise and when we worship and when we set our hearts to seek God, it's not that God is any more present in the world then than he is normally. He is everywhere present and fills all things. What happens is that our hearts become able to perceive him and to see what he's doing. It is in a sense as if God says, I was always with you. But now because you can see me, you can enjoy me more. I preach a lot of funerals and the passage that I often preach on is Psalm 23. Very famous psalm, and it, uh, it in its middle stanza it goes like this: uh, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, literally the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for your rod and your staff are with me. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, even though I can see nothing, you are still there. I can put it this way, when we praise and worship God and God reveals himself to us, it is as if for a moment he turns on the lights and you can see him. And because you can see him in the midst of the valley, you know what you should do. Our our eyes are open to the reality of his presence. I think that's something of what's going on at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit who's been present in the world since the beginning of the world is suddenly present to the disciples in a way that is brand new. Because they've opened themselves to him in prayer, praise and worship. They are filled with his presence in a new way. And so we're transformed. As we experience the glory and presence of God, it changes us. The fruit of the presence of God is the change in character is a change in character. We come to show the fruit of his presence by growing in love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Display first of all in how we love one another. This is the second thing about being a church that seeks the glory of God. A church that seeks the glory of God worships before everything else. It also loves each other. Jesus said this, My prayer is not for them alone, that is, his disciples who are with him. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me.
when we experience the glory of God, we love one another. And we are transformed. This is what prophet Isaiah said. This is not the kind of fasting I've chosen. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. And your righteousness will go before you and the glory of your Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. Or as Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. My friends, if you want to see lives transformed in this village, if you want to see the hungry fed and the naked clothed, if you want to see those who are despairing counselled, those who are weak strengthened, those who need hope brought to Jesus Christ, if you want to see this church packed full, seek the glory of God. Dwell in his presence in praise. Let his presence transform you and then you will be the transforming presence in your family. When you come across somebody who is stressed and laid down with work, they will come to you. When you are seeking the glory of God and you are in worship regularly and you are filled with God's presence and you see someone hungry, you will be aware that you can feed them. To speak a word of peace where there is conflict. A word of hope where there is despair. When we are transformed by encountering God's glory and presence, we reflect that glory to the world around us. To put it another way, God's glory is infectious. We care for the people around us, love those who are lonely, forgive those who are guilty, and speak to them of someone who's conquered death. When we do that, they start to glorify God. There are people in this church, not physically at the moment, who worship as part of this community, who have come and encountered Christ and had their lives transformed because someone baked them a lasagna. lasagna actually it was a vegetable lasagna and it was spectacularly good what does this mean want to be a church where we take joy in God God is going to be the center of our worship services of our toddler groups of our football games, of our alpha courses, and of everything else we do. Most often this will be expressed in worship. We love to sing and praise God together. It's part of the reason why we're on a journey with these other churches that are like ours, that I share about occasionally. We are encouraging anybody who's interested in social transformation to come along to uh, the New Ground Conference that we're going to in November to hear about how we can impact the community around us and care for those who need caring for. 
It's part of the reason why we're looking at going camping with other churches and joining with other churches in praise and worship because we just want to get together with as many people as possible and sing and glorify God. We want to praise God in an exciting and lively way. We want to be a church that encourages and practices the presence of God. To be people who meet with God collectively and individually. My desire as the pastor of this church is that each one of us will be meeting with God in a way that's meaningful for us. It won't look the same for each one of you. It doesn't even look the same for me and Heather. But each one of us encountering God and being filled with His Spirit. We want to encourage each other to pray regularly and to read the Bible. We'll make time in our services and groups for encountering and being filled with the Spirit for using spiritual gifts. And then we want to be God's presence. We want to be God's presence. We want the fruit of our encounter with God to feed into every part of our lives. We want to be a group that works out what this looks like for each one of us. I can't tell you what this will look like in your lives. There is someone who worships in this church at the moment, I won't embarrass him by naming him, who, uh, since a few years ago, coming to me and saying, Phil, I want, you, I want to be prayed for, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I prayed for them, and uh, put my hands on them, and prayed with them. And since then, has developed the most extraordinary pastoral ministry amongst people outside this church. I mean, every week, comes in with a new... Think, oh, should we, should we pray together? And then, like, this says, oh, well, there's this person on my road who needs prayer. Who's lonely? He just come out of nowhere, and I'm sitting there and I'm a bit jealous because I'm sitting there thinking, "Well, what's wrong with me?" You know, well, this is what it looks like for him. It's what it looks like for him. It looks different for each one of us. We are, however, going to put together stuff that allows us to think about this for each one of us. So, for men. I'm planning to begin monthly chances for men to get together and worship and think about what it looks like to be men of God. Because it looks different to be a man of God than it does to be a woman of God. I mean, that stands to reason, doesn't it? The environments that we live in are different. The skills we have are different. The conversations we have are different. Every time I go to the pub after football, Heather asks me, what did you talk about? And I come back and say, well, we talked about football. And then she says, well, what did you really talk about? We said, well, house prices... She's like, well, how's, you know, ex's wife? Didn't ask. I'm sorry. Is she feeling better? Don't know. <laughs> Is he married? <laughs> how's Jim's children? Oh, yeah, both the girls are fine. He's got sons. <laughs> she goes out to dinner with her friends and comes back and is like, oh, well. I'm like, what did you talk about, love? Oh, well, you know, X or Y has got this going on. I'm sitting there thinking, I didn't... When are you going to... Did none of you watch football? <laughs> I want to know what the girls thought about Newcastle. Is Rafa Benitez going to be there for this whole season? They didn't even talk about it. Unbelievable. How could you spend an entire evening and not talk about it? <laughs> Point is, it looks different to be a man of God than it does to be a woman of God. So we're going we're gonna to begin men's evenings. Uh, we're going to... Heather and Miranda are already... Uh, planning stuff with uh, women in the church, meeting together and praying. And, and then we want to do our life groups. We want to have our life groups, which are chances where we get together as mixed groups, to look at the Bible together, to think, actually, what does this mean for me? To answer the question, how is it with your soul? 
part of the problem uh, I sense with, part of the privilege in my position is that I get to ask questions that nobody else can ask. Because everybody basically accepts that I'm a nutter already. So there is no fear. I had coffee with a guy once who isn't a part of this church, but I am good friends with. And uh, we were talking about faith. And I said, look, I know it sounds nuts. We're talking about the journey. Uh, that I've been on. I know it sounds nuts, but I thought God told us to do it. And I said, but in fairness, everything I'm saying to you sounds nuts. I get that. <laughs> I give my whole life to tell people about a, a dead man who came alive again, who's the son of God. People have already crossed that Rubicon with me. There's already a certain measure of, okay. One of the things I've noticed is that people are desperate for, to be asked the big questions. Desperate to talk about something beyond trivialities. Actually, as Christians, we can get stuck talking about trivialities for fear of being impolite. I want you to ask me, how is it with my soul? Because that's when I get real with what is actually going on in my life. And it's uncomfortable because being real always is. But we need to get real. If we're going to grow, you don't grow by kidding yourselves. I spent a summer baking. And it was brilliant. I had a blog. I, uh, I cooked a Portuguese coron. Apricot coron. You ever have one of these? It's like a kind of crown plaited from bread dough. Filled with apricots and glazed. And then it's got sugar on the top. And it looks amazing. Big thing. Baked brioche. At the end of the summer, I I went. To the, I was also trying to uh, do exercise at the same time and diet, as well as doing baking and writing a blog about it and cooking this amazing bread. Went to the summer. The, went to the doctor at the end of the summer to get my uh, prescription for my inhalers renewed. Right, you know inhalers are steroids. And I said to him, Doctor, is that a problem? Because I don't seem to be losing any weight. I'm trying to exercise. I just wonder whether it's the steroids in the inhaler. And he looked at me and was like, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, like, there's, no, there's not enough steroid in the inhaler to affect you at all, right? Like, if you're a Tour de France cyclist, this will make you fail a drugs test. But beyond that, there's nothing else going to affect you at all. No, you are getting fat because you keep making bread. <laughs> it wasn't until I got real. That was an uncomfortable moment for me. I just sort of pinned my hope on the inhaler. The doctor came and said, you've got to get real. I mean, he wasn't rude, but he was sceptical of my theory. We want this to be an environment as well where people can feed ideas for how we can be the presence of God. I wasn't joking at the beginning where I said, I don't know what this means for us because you haven't told me yet. I'm waiting. I don't mean for ideas of what you can do as a church, right? As a pastor, I'm swimming with those. I had an idea, Phil. What I think you should do is this. All right, I'll add that to my list of things I should be doing. What I mean is what God is telling you to do that I can help you with. Ultimately, we hope that each one of us will have opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with those we meet. We're going to take some time just to be quiet now. I'm going to play some images on the screen of Jesus. If you feel helpful to uh, think and pray in the presence of images, then that's fine. Jesus is the uh, icon of the invisible God, it says. Uh, so it's okay to, to contemplate that. And 
If you want to close your eyes, feel free to. If you want to put your hands out in front, feel free to. This is going to go on for a few minutes. And then I'm going to get us to get into little groups. And we're just going to pray for each other. If there's anything we feel God speaking to us about. So let's just be quiet. Either look at the screen or show your eyes. Put your hands out. Pray, come Holy Spirit. Fill us with your glory. Fill us with the glory of the Father. Lead us into his presence. Come Holy Spirit, speak to each one of us. What are you challenging each one of us about this year? Come Holy Spirit. I'm going to stop talking in a moment to leave the silence for us to hear from God in, but I feel very strongly that I should say I think God is speaking to at least one of us and saying actually I need you to put away the idols at the beginning of this year there are things that are good things that have assumed too great an importance in your life and you need to put them away before you can go on with me if you feel that's you I just want to encourage you in the silence come to God tell him what they are and ask him to be the one who's actually at the centre of your life